Welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard, and I'm introducing this episode, which is a guide to insulin therapy. Our guest is Paula Mayo, a lecturer in the School of Healthcare at the University of Leeds. And she's been speaking with my colleague, senior nurse editor Richard Hatchett, about why we need insulin, its role in type 1 and 2 diabetes, the safety implications when administering it, and also the impact of diet and exercise on blood glucose levels. This is a really useful potted guide for nursing students and also nurses who may wish to refresh their knowledge and get answers to questions they may be embarrassed to ask, says Richard. So let's take a listen. It's been a hundred years since insulin was discovered by Banting, Best and McLeod at the University of Toronto in 1921. And it's been 99 years in 2021 since insulin was first used in the treatment of diabetes. In today's podcast, we're looking at what might be regarded as some fundamental questions related to insulin therapy, particularly because, of course, nurses are so intricately involved in uh, patients who are on insulin, whether that's nurse-led clinics, specialist advice, prescribing or supporting patients. And I'm joined today by Paula Mayo, who's a lecturer in the School of Healthcare at the University of Leeds. And Paula is, is very central to diabetes care there because she's run several modules, Fundamentals of Diabetes Care, Principles and Challenges in Diabetes Management. And of course, importantly for us, she's one of our key reviewers at Nursing Standard for um, diabetes articles. So welcome, Paula. Thank you very much. So we're going to, somebody was saying actually, Paula, that um, we're going to be looking at some of the questions that you you don't like to admit you don't know. So um, we are looking at some, um, some fundamental things that perhaps are, are useful for students and um, perhaps those newly qualified, but also those who've been in it a while and perhaps need a, a refresher and an update. Yeah. So I suppose the first thing to say is why, why do we need insulin? What is insulin? Why do we need it? Well, insulin is actually, it's a really important hormone in the body. Um, it's made and released by the beta cells in the pancreas. And it has a really important role in controlling our blood glucose levels. So what happens when we eat some food, we have our sandwich or a coffee or um, a meal, our blood glucose levels rise and insulin will then be released in order to allow the glucose to come out of the blood cells and to be utilized as fuel and also to be stored in our muscle cells, our liver and also our fat cells as well. So it's a really important hormone in blood glucose control. So I suppose before the discovery of insulin, people didn't actually survive, did they? They were put on starvation diets and they lived a few months, particularly children, and they died. So when you say it's really important, you actually need, need it for life. You absolutely do need it for life. And yes, I remember when patients used to be admitted to hospital and, as you say, put on starvation diets. Um, and particularly people who developed type 1 diabetes, type 1 is an autoimmune condition. So for some reason people destroy their own beta cells. And that means that they can't produce any insulin by themselves. So in order to maintain life, they need to go on to insulin injections for the rest of their life. So I'm right in saying, Paula, you can't actually take it orally, you can't take it as a tablet. 
No, you can't take it as a tablet. Um, and the reason for that is because it's broken down in the stomach um, far too quickly before it can have any action on your blood glucose levels. Um, of course, we did um, dally with inhaled insulin for a little while a few years ago, um, but that proved to be a little bit problematic and it has gone back to the drawing board. So you talked about type one. I know there are a number of different types of um, of diabetes. Could you touch on some of those type one and type two? Yeah, as I mentioned, type one, it's autoimmune. So as I said, um, the body destroys its own beta cells um, and it's not at all related to lifestyle. However, it can be hereditary. So it does tend to run in families. Whereas type 2 diabetes, on the other hand, 90% um, of people who've got type 2 diabetes will have been or will be obese at the time of diagnosis. And what happens in these people is they tend to put down excess amounts of abdominal fat. And that abdominal fat actually blocks the action of the insulin. So these people become what we refer to as insulin resistant. The body resists its own insulin and therefore it doesn't have the desired effect on the blood glucose levels. The blood glucose levels then will gradually over a period of time start to rise and um, the beta cells have to work harder and harder and harder in order to bring these blood glucose levels down to the extent that they're working so hard that they actually become exhausted and die. And in that situation, that's when the person will start to develop the classic signs and symptoms of diabetes, like your thirst, your polyuria, your fatigue, things like that. And it's that that will take them to the GP um, and they will need some treatment and therapy um, for their for their type 2 diabetes. So I always think about type 1 as younger, type 2 as older, but I'm also aware now that we're getting younger type 2 diabetics that, and that may be linked to like lifestyle, that you that there's a bit of blurring between the age brackets. Well, there's, there is, absolutely. And um, whilst you refer to your type 1s as tending to be younger people, um, yes, they are. But we are also seeing an explosion of type 1 in 30, 40 and even 50 year olds at the moment, which is rather concerning. Um, and of equal concern is your type 2s in years gone by used to be your sort of middle to later age people. So your 60s, 70s, 80 year olds. But we have now a significant number of children being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, um, all linked to the current obesity burden that we have um, at the moment, unfortunately. So, Paula, can you run through what types of insulin are currently available? Um, we've actually got a lot of different insulins available now on the market, which is um, very helpful. Um, so we've got the classics of we've got bovine and porcine insulin, which is from cows and pigs. Um, but we've also now got genetically modified insulins as well. So we've got human insulin and analog insulins as well. 
Um, and each of those categories can then be broken down into the different action times for insulin. So we've got ultra short acting and that literally starts to act as soon as the person injects the insulin. Um, but it only lasts in the system for quite um, a short period of time, two to four hours. Then we've got some short acting insulin, which tends to take a little bit longer to start working and it will last in, in the system a little bit longer, maybe up to six or eight hours. And going on from that, we've got again longer acting. So we've got intermediate acting insulin and long acting insulin. Um, which again take longer to start acting and will remain in the system and will remain active for a, a longer period of time, sometimes up to 12, 14, 24 hours. And we've also got long acting peakless insulin. Um, and one of the common insulins there is Lantus insulin, which lasts for 24 hours, but it doesn't have any peak action time. So it's very good um, because it doesn't um, increase the risk of hypos and it's very um, predicted in its action time. We've also got mixed insulin. And um, this is where two insulins are mixed together by the manufacturer in the vial. Um, and typically that would be a short acting insulin mixed with an intermediate acting insulin. And they're quite often used where somebody is just on twice a day insulin. Um, so they have their insulin with breakfast and their insulin with their evening meal. That generally would be um, via a mixed insulin. I wonder what some of the safety factors are, Paula, when we're thinking about prescribing insulin, because it's quite a dangerous drug, isn't it? It is certainly um, a dangerous drug, yes. Um, and people can die of insulin overdose, unfortunately. So therefore, when we are administering insulin, there are a number of safety things that we need to consider. Um, one of them, when we're looking at the prescription chart, is to make sure that the insulin name has been written in capitals so that it's clear and um, there can be no confusion or ambiguity about it. And also insulin is prescribed in units. And so the, the word units needs to be written in full because there's been instances where just a U has been um, written and with poor handwriting that has been interpreted as a zero. So a patient may have had been prescribed 10 units, uh, but the poor prescription actually ended up with 100 units. So that's really quite serious. Um, insulin should never be a one-off PRN drug, really. Um, it shouldn't be prescribed really as a stat dose. If you're having to give a stat dose, then it means that your patient is really quite poorly and needs insulin immediately. Um, but when it's used in routine care, it tends to be linked to crisis management. Um, and it's more about learning why the person's blood glucose level is high at the time, rather than just giving them a quick correction dose of insulin to try and bring it down. Because unfortunately, that won't help in getting overall control for this person. We touched a little bit on this, Paula, because you said that um, you can't take it as a tablet. Um, but how is it actually administered? 
Insulin's administered um, subcutaneously, so it has to be via an injection. And um, these days we are very lucky in having pen devices. So the majority of patients will have a specialist pen device which they'll attach a needle to and they will dial up the number of units that they need and they'll give it to themselves or healthcare professional will give it to them um, subcutaneously. We've also got insulin pumps now as well, which deliver a measured dose and, me and different measured doses over a 24 hour period. Um, and that's done via a, a pump that sits just under the needle for the pump sits just under the skin. Um, so again, it's delivered subcutaneously. Um, and that can be really useful in um, patients who are particularly having difficulty controlling their blood glucose levels and um, because they have much greater control um, over the insulin delivery if, if it's via a pump. There are still but very few people still in the community that will still use the old-fashioned needle and syringe um, so we need to be prepared to maybe come across them. Um, but in acute settings where a person's blood glucose level is particularly high and they need some urgent treatment for this, then we will give insulin intravenously as well, because that gives us excellent control um, of blood glucose levels during that acute period of illness. How do we actually store it, Paula? Because I'm thinking, you know, we get some very hot summers <laughs> going on at the moment. Um, and we see it in the fridge, but I'm presuming that people need it with them if it's in a pen as well. So I wondered, were there any issues around storage to ensure that it actually works? Um, yes, there are. Um, the current guidelines are that the, the pen that is in use can be left out of the fridge for up to a maximum of 28 days. But to be honest, um, a pen doesn't usually last 28 days it has 300 units of insulin in which a, a patient will probably use sooner than 28 days and in fact quite often patients will tell you that it's more comfortable to give insulin at room temperature rather than straight from the fridge. Any insulin vials that are not in use do need to be stored in a fridge um, and they need to be kept cool. And whilst we can take a pen out with us, as you say, we are, you know, having some warmer summers these these days, which is very nice. So we need to be very careful um, that the insulin doesn't get too hot during the summers. And I'm thinking particularly if it's left in a hot car um, or out on the beach in blazing sun then what somebody would be advised to do would be to um, either buy a special um, insulated little pouch to put their insulin pen in, or even just pop it into a, a small thermos flask and we'll keep it at the required temperature. Um, what we also need to be careful of is that insulin doesn't freeze. Um, so if we're taking it on holiday with us, we have to make sure that we don't put it in the hold of the aircraft where it gets very cold and is liable to freezing. So it needs to come on board the aircraft with us um, as well in order to ensure that it doesn't get altered and that the actions that we're expecting are going to be delivered.
Just a final question from me, Paula, is the relationship between insulin and food. And I'm thinking once they've had their insulin, they must eat, but also exercise if they're feeling poorly, food poisoning, vomiting, all sorts of, of issues that people have in their everyday life uh, when they're taking insulin. Well, as we've mentioned, when anybody has insulin, it is going to lower their blood glucose levels. So therefore, whenever we give insulin, the golden rule is we need to feed that insulin. So a person would need to make sure that they take their insulin and then they eat. So they would have their meal, their snack, um, whatever it was that they were planning on eating, so that the insulin has got something to work on. It's the blood glucose levels are rising from the food and the insulin can work on those to bring them down. Now, people who've had diabetes for quite some time, particularly type 1 diabetes, get very good at manipulating their insulin and their insulin doses in accordance to the amount of carbohydrates they've got in the diet. And they get very good at that. And what they begin to do is they begin to recognise the effect that exercise can have on blood glucose levels. So exercise can actually lower blood glucose levels because it's using the glucose in the bloodstream as fuel for the exercise activity. So somebody on insulin, if they're planning on exercising, they may take one or two units less at their mealtime in order to counteract that effect of the exercise. And you mentioned about people being poorly, maybe with food poisoning. Um, there's a common misconception that if somebody is not eating um, and they are possibly vomiting, then their blood glucose levels are going to be really low and therefore they, they wouldn't need their insulin. But actually the converse is true and because the person is probably fighting off an infection. When we have an infection, we release adrenaline and adrenaline increases our blood glucose levels. So even in the case of food poisoning, it's quite likely that somebody would need more insulin than, um, than they would expect. And we do actually have some sick day rules that can help guide a person through that process. Um, if they were to ever find themselves in that situation. Okay, well, thanks, Paula. I've learned a lot as a registered nurse. I'm not going to confess which bits I always struggled with, but um, you've filled some gaps there for me. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that all the resources connected with this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on any episodes you may have missed or simply want to play back. And we greatly appreciate any feedback, so please do rate or review us on Apple or Spotify podcasts, which will also help other people to find us. I hope you enjoyed the show.